Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I am your host, Josh Schlossberg. For this episode, we would like to welcome Deanna Meyer. Deanna is a longtime environmental activist and a board member of Deep Green Resistance and Prairie Protection Colorado and the executive director of Prairie Protection Colorado. She has a goat and chicken farm, grows organic vegetables year round and lives in a beautiful forest with mountain meadows filled with the jump yip of prairie dogs from a colony she helped save. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you because I've known you for a while. We've never met, but we've been in Facebook communication. And the thing that you cover the most, prairie dogs, prairie issues, that's not something talked about as much. So I'm very glad that we can get into that. So I guess let's just start from the beginning. Why should people care about prairies? Yeah, well, grasslands are one of are the most endangered ecosystems on the planet or biotic communities on the planet. Um, and they're also the most effective carbon sink. They are what, it, when they are healthy prairies, they create an amazing amount of diversity on the landscape. They basically, like most other uh, biotic communities on the planet help us to survive, help keep our, the water clean, help all the other animals and plants and everything else on this planet and life as we know it to continue as it does. So prairies should be a direct concern to all of us and they're being very rapidly destroyed. There's less than like, it's like 98% of all, 99% of all the grasslands are pretty much gone and have been converted into agriculture or mostly agriculture and development. So really, I guess we'll care about life on this planet. It should be a huge interest to all of us that this is happening and we should all be working on how figuring out how to restore them. Cool. Yeah. So we both live in Colorado and yeah, I'm living in an area where it's basically the edge of prairie where it starts meeting the mountains. And so my understanding is that is a very rare ecosystem as well, that edge kind of ecosystem. Uh, I forget what they call that, but it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. So what is the difference between a straight up prairie or grassland or when you're coming into some of these mountain meadows on the edge of say like the front range mountains in Colorado here? Yeah, well, grasslands usually extend for, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles. And we have the whole like Western United States used to be a large uh, area of grasslands. Um, what we're seeing, like where, up where I live, I'm in the forest, but we have mountain meadows like throughout the forested area. And those were created through like glaciers and then creeks and, um, you know, rivers. So you'll see lots of different meadows that are formed if they're natural meadows in mountainous areas that have been created by usually some type of water, beavers, um, different kinds of wildlife or events that have made those meadows. So there's, there, there is that difference between big wide open grasslands and then you've got like meadows that are carved out through, through forests, through different types of disturbances. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. And why would you say that these Grasslands, they've been so destroyed and degraded just because it's easy to build and destroy as opposed to more craggy mountains. Is it as simple as that? In some ways, I mean, the soil is really um, wonder rich and, and beautiful and was very uh, productive for agricultural uses. So when you have the have the colonizers come through here and put everything, you know, under the plow or 
or till it all up. It was wonderful uh, soil that had been built up for hundreds of thousands of years um, with, with, you know, fires, everything that makes really healthy soil um, had been built up in those areas. So uh, yeah, that's that the, this it's, it's ideal for growing crops. And then of course, right now it's very, and also it's ideal for building um, suburbs and, and malls and everything else where it would be much more difficult to do that on any type of a slope. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. So we're down to a very small percentage and it's funny because I've been in some areas that definitely qualify as full on grasslands for a while. And it does feel really wild and I could almost get a sense of what it used to feel like back in the day. Obviously nothing like it because we don't have the amount of wildlife and the vast expanses, but in some ways it's almost like being out in an ocean. It's, it's, it's a very different experience than being in a forest and it's just as wild. So I'm sure you've had some experience with that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's just, so. it used to be, it's so hard now because I mean, we can call it declining baselines or whatever, but we really don't have, um, as people being alive today, an inkling of an idea of what those grasslands look like 100, 200 years ago, or 500 years ago, you know, prior to colonization and how much diversity was actually on those areas. And we can look and, and assume how much, but it would be very hard for us to actually imagine it. And the whole soil structure and everything was so much different than it is today just from the actual roots of the diversity of perennial plants that grew out there in conjunction and together with all the prairie dogs and thinking of all the beavers who lived out there and all of the animals that we don't even know um, that were a part of those communities were, were, it was very robust and very diverse. And there was a lot of different um, parts working together. And we've pretty much taken all of those grasslands and the diversity and we've biotically cleansed them and we biotically cleanse them for one use. And so now you see a lot of these grasslands that would even be hard that seem to be in pretty good shape, which are still full of invasive weeds and have had a lot of destruction on them from all the cows. So that's another thing, of course, with these flatlands and all the grass and, and prairies, a lot of the, uh, I mean, the colonizers and our ancestors or whatever have come through and definitely tried to make it meet the needs of their livestock. Um, and planted all of the, you know, Timothy grass or alfalfa or all kinds of different hays that really take over and are very aggressive invasives. Mm. And they have completely like turned around the, the soil ecology of the entire area, including the prairie dogs. Yep. Yeah. So I've seen some writings from Lewis and Clark or whatever, and when they weren't killing creatures, they were looking at it and it was kind of like these open landscapes and then there'd be just these herds of buffalo here. And then there'd just be these packs of wolves. Basically, the only thing that we have today with that is in basically in Africa, where you can see all of these creatures existing, coexisting in just this one big landscape. And yeah, we've lost that. And that's really sad. But what creatures still remain that are worth protecting on these grasslands? I mean, obviously, they're all worth protecting. But what ones in particular would you name that still exist? Well, yeah, I mean, prairie dogs are, are really essential to these grasslands and so are buffalo. And I call those like the bookends of the prairie. And of course, the, and I just say that because those two species see, are the supporters in the soil tillers and the, um, the, the, the keystone species of what 
needs to survive on the grasslands, including all the plants. Right. Um, and of course we still see coyotes. A lot of coyotes are still out there and coyotes, coyotes are amazing and resilient creatures. They're also extraordinarily just like prairie dogs hated. Mm -hmm. Um, and they've really had a war driven against them from this, from the people, uh, ranchers and the, the people who've moved here since the beginning wolves, of course, were trying, you know, they're, they're gone for most of the prairies. They are in certain areas. Um, and they're, they're always in the, you know, the line of fire of a lot of colonizers. It's a, they're also a very hated creature. Um, the ones who have been able to make it really um, and be resilient to an extent. And that resiliency could is definitely waning would be like the buffalo and the prairie dogs. But they need to be able to roam and they need to be able to expand for all of the other animals that absolutely depend on them. Like prairie dogs, the black-footed ferret, which is an interesting program and, and a complete failure of a program. Um, that is the still North America's most endangered mammal. And they are 99% dependent on large prairie dog colonies. Um, in fact, 20,000 acres of densely populated prairie dogs are needed to sustain uh, strong, you know, family, strong families of uh, ferrets. And that's why they're the most critically endangered species because there just isn't very many, there aren't any places like that. Maybe a couple left like Thunder Basin, which they just approved to kill prairie dogs on that area. Um, that was one area that might've had a long-term sustainability, you know, landscape for the return of the black-footed ferrets. But, hmm. you know, it's, and they're very, very inbred. They found one family and now they keep breeding the same genetics over and over again. So they're not real resilient in themselves, the black-footed ferrets because of that. But you know, burrowing owls are also are very much dependent upon the prairie dogs, peregrine falcons. We've got all the eagles, like golden and bald eagle eagles, really depend on prairie dogs in the winter because in the in the summer they they can get a lot of the fish. Well, and that's also another thing that is vastly everything's disappearing from all these animals. But when they they would take breaks and move from the rivers and the uh, and and all of the water sources of fish in the winter when those would freeze up and then they'd head out to the colonies right. to the prairie dog colonies and start feeding more on them of course they feed on them year round but there are all over 180 different species depend on prairie dogs for their actual like health and survival so if you remove just like beavers or you know prairie dogs or buffalo or wolves or any of these keystone species mountain lions when they're pulled from the ecosystem and bobcats then there's a lot of cascading effects that happen with that, with that action. So there, you know, that's for us. And that's why I focus a lot on prairie dogs is because people don't, they're very demonized um, by a lot of people and they have been throughout the stories of our culture. And then they're, you know, and they're also extraordinarily in those, those demonizations are based on a lot of untruths. I would call them myths. And well, anybody would call myths when you break them apart, like prairie dogs don't bring plague to you. And that's like a huge mis misinformation. They're not carriers of plague. They die from it. It's one of, it's a huge threat for healthy colonies of prairie dogs. And you could tell the only reason people know plagues are in areas is because a prairie dog colony will be there one day and then they'll all be gone the next. So the plague, they don't have any susceptibility and the plague was brought over here by rats from both Asia and Europe on ships and the prairie dogs didn't have any immunity to the, the plague that runs through them, the sylvatic plague. So yeah, there's, so the, definitely that that's my focus in Colorado too, people, they, 
kind of result and tell a bigger picture of what's happened to all of the native people and animals and just all of the indigenous plants and all of that. And you can, and you can see them everywhere. So if you come to Colorado and you're going to drive up and down the front range um, where the, that edge community is from, from plains to, to mountains, you're going to see colonies of prairie dogs. Um, when you get out from the airport, you'll see some living in between the highway, like in the middle of the run of the highways, you know, um, and you'll see them existing in little pockets here and there. And that gives people the impression that there's a lot of them and that they're not in trouble, which is really far from the truth because these are the very last ones that have been able to make it. And they're kind of shoved in these tiny little pockets in really bad conditions. And with them is, is the health of many other critters. They've been called, and I don't mean critters, I mean animals. I hate that word. I don't know why I use it, but uh, they, they feed that they're called like the candy bars of the prairies is one term that I've heard used, which I thought is pretty true. I mean, they, they really are essential in feeding everybody and feeding all of the communities of life around them. And when you see them go or get shoved in the corners where other animals can't, you know, can't get to them or increase their chances of being struck by a car or whatever, when they're trying to get to them, then you're just looking at a big problem overall. Sure. In balance. Yeah. And I knew, of course, that they were food for a lot of predators and whatnot. But what I wasn't aware of is the fact that their burrows were utilized by other creatures, similar to, I guess, woodpeckers or other creatures that make you know, holes in wood and then other creatures are dependent on that. So that's almost as if nature has interconnections and knows what it's yeah. doing. Yeah. Well, the real interesting thing about the burrows too, that a lot of people don't know is like there used to be, I mean, imagine that right now prairie dogs are down to less than 1% of their historic populations. So, and they estimate there was around 5 billion prairie dogs in this Western area of the plains. And the prairie dogs had really large colonies um, all over and they would burrow and make all of these fissures down into the land. And uh, both the Navajo and the Hopi used to warn the white people who would come through and kill all the prairie dogs. And they'd say, if you kill all the prairie dogs, there'll be no more rain. Mm -hmm. And then that was looked into by Bill Mollison and he, cause he recognized and Stephen Booner. And they thought, you know, there's gotta be some truth to that, that saying. So they found out that the burrows had, there were so many of them, they went down and they enabled the groundwater actually mm -hmm. with the pool of the moon. Um, much like, you know, ocean tides to rise and fall. And with that rising and falling of the water through those fissures, and it wasn't just prairie dogs, we know voles and any kind of burrowing animal, mm -hmm. it, it allows the water levels to rise and fall, which creates condensation, just like rainforests. Right. So there was a lot of truth huh. in that. And then also oh. when it rains and when we get lots of moisture, that rain is able to go into these burrows oh. and into these holes and fill up the groundwater. Um, so it's like right now we're seeing it's kind of like with the beavers it's the story i that that i i remember listening to an interview i forget his name i think farb he wrote a book about the beavers and he had said that the in the eastern united states the indigenous the native people would wouldn't they weren't like against killing beaver and they ate them and that was part of their diet but in the west that was completely like a taboo. It didn't happen. It was because they would say, well, if you're going to kill the beaver, how are you going to drink water? 
So, I mean, because this is a dry, arid area, and the only reason we're here right now is because we are irrigating and taking water from rivers and piping it over. Um, but those animals, like the prairie dogs and the beavers, they were essential in hydraulic cycles that allowed many, many different species to live on these areas. And we're just going around and packing all these holes, killing all these animals, mm -hmm. and then running out of water at an extraordinarily rapid rate. And we don't have any, and we're eliminating all of the healers and all of the ones who know how to, you know, bring back diversity in water tables and, and all of that. Mm. Yeah, it seems as if, so the demonization you're talking about, so they making holes, right? So of course, folks who ride around with horses, they don't like that. And then there's the idea of, it's just spoiling our thing where we want to build here or we want to do whatever here. You're just messing it up for us. So I, I see how it's very easy to take a look at them and say, you're destroying what we're trying to do. It's like, well, yeah, they are probably destroying your efforts to build some sort of civilization out here, but they are maintaining the ecosystem. This is literally how it's done. They're churning the soil. Like you said, the groundwater stuff, which I wasn't familiar with. So yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the species that maybe isn't paid attention to as much. Like you say, demonized. Luckily, they are cute as hell. So they definitely have that going for them in terms of mainstream appeal. But they're not necessarily, I'm not seeing a lot of films made about them, like there are pandas or things like that. Why do you think they're so ignored? It's so funny because I think a lot of people in this culture have a deep-rooted fear and disgust for rodents. Mm -hmm. um, and prairie dogs, like they'll go on and say, it's a rat. It shouldn't have been called a prairie dog. It should have been called a prairie rat or whatever. And they have this really like essential fear of, of rats for whatever, you know, for the diseases. And we see that being attributed to prairie dogs. Um, and just for just the, the idea of them being a nuisance and destroying land. So when you go through, a lot of times you'll see prairie dog colonies and with our colon with our minds of everything being uh, more like a monoculture looking really clean. Like they do that with the forest too. forest should be real open and it should be all nice and clear on, which is just not true at all. But it's the same thing with the prairie dogs. You look at these colonies and you see these mounds of dirt and in a lot of them, especially in town, you're not seeing um, grasses. You're not seeing much vegetation around them. It looks like a dust bowl. And that is not the prairie dogs problem. I mean, that's because we have gone through and destroyed or, or agriculturalists have gone through and tilled the land or done whatever to the land and destroyed all of those awesome like perennial roots and plants that had lived with prairie dogs for hundreds who, who knows how long they've been around much longer than we have um and they then they kind of get left with the dust and so people look at that and they say look at those they destroy land they destroy and they're not like and i've learned especially since i've fallen in love with the prairie dogs like to look at the burrows and be really excited about like because they're all formed differently. Some of them look like volcanoes, some of them are flatter, and they all do this too to create an exact, like precise amount of airflow through their burrows because they have to get, so they have to construct them in a certain way. They're quite the engineers so that the air will flow through it at a certain rate. Um, so you'll see a lot of, I, I look at it differently now like that, but people who are just looking at it already have the whole idea, like these are plague carrying rodents, which is carried heavy on the media, which we saw last year when the, the plague was detected over at the Rocky mountain arsenal by where they were having the fish concert and stuff. And everybody started doing all this 
horror, like this, this demonizing fear of the prairie dogs and the plague. Um, so there's, a, there's, there's many pieces. And the, the, the thing that's kind of carried over is originally the prairie dogs, along with every other native being who lived out on the prairies, were just completely exterminated and they were used like, and they still use poisons and everything, but they used to use strychnine on them and they used to use cyanide and they just take for, for all of the animals, they'd have bait stations and up and down Colorado of horse meat. Uh, and then they'd put cyanide all over the meat for all of the coyotes and all of the mountain lions and all of the wolves. And, you know, the, and the coyotes got smart to that. So they had to keep coming up with different poisons and we still have the poison lab here in Fort Collins and they call themselves the national wildlife, uh, uh, research center. Mm -hmm. And they still are, that's basically the bulk of their work is working for the United States department of agriculture, wildlife services, trying to figure out different kinds of poisons to kill off all the birds and to kill off any, all of the native species who are problematic to big feedlots or to big like cows. And so that's, that's kind of where the, the prairie dogs and horses stepping in the holes, it just doesn't happen unless somebody's riding them. And back in the early days when like there's a book, that lady bird book um, that came out about Colorado and she rode up and down the front range in the 1800, 1800s. And when there's a lot of snow and you're riding a horse through snow, say, it might be hard to see a hole. And you, you, I'm sure they did have injuries like that. But in general, the only way a horse is going to step in the hole is if the rider is on it and directing them there, or if the horse is terrified from a predator chasing them or something. Sure. So, I mean, the main reason, and that still carries over in our laws so our laws in Colorado label prairie dogs as a nuisance species. And then Colorado Parks and Wildlife will say they're a keystone, but in the a keystone species, but in the law, they they call them a nuisance, which means they can be killed in any way, shape, or form, and that they're really seen as something to get off the landscape. And that was namely in the beginning, like you can't grow hay uh, with prairie dogs, put it in bales. So bale up, you also can't grow your crops. So the prairie dogs do limit, you can't do that on a prairie dog colony. There, they are mounds and everything. So they've also shown, which uh, before I forget, when you were talking about just the burrows and everything and the, when they dig down into the soil, they, they raise up like minerals. So the grasses can, and the perennials can grab onto those necessary minerals for the foragers, for all the buffalo and uh, the antelope and the elk and the deer and everybody who eats that are brought up to the surface into those plants that would be locked down otherwise without burrowers. It's not just the, any burrowing animal. It completely helps like the, the health of the grass. And they've shown in multiple studies that both cows, horse, all cows, horses, and buffalo and antelope and any grazers prefer to hang around the prairie dog colonies that are vegetated and that haven't been completely destroyed from the, the, crop, the tills. Mm -hmm. um, from tilling it that they much, they prefer eating there because the grasses taste sweeter and they just have a better flavor than the grasses that don't have that kind of, uh, soil work being done on it. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. They're fertilizing the soil. It makes, yep. makes a heck of a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So just to swing back really quick to the plague cases. So I'm finding here on CDC website and most of the carrying of it, so bubonic form. In recent decades, an average of seven human plague cases have been reported each year. Seven, so one to 17 cases. That's like basically nothing. So it exists, 
but <laughs> I mean, we have a plague going on in the U.S. right now that is uh, that's for real. So it's important to put that in perspective because people hear what the plague, the bubonic plague. What like okay, take a look. Yeah, seven cases. It's a range of one to seventeen cases per year, and we it's a bacteria, so we can handle that. It's not a viral infection. So the concerns that might be out there about people are going to get this. No, they're not. So. Right. And I'm looking at that map right now. And if you look at, cause they have from 2000 to 2018 and you can see there's two, four, six, like seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve 12 people have died in the entire United States from right. this plague. And it's the 12 people. I mean, more people have been killed by vending machines falling on them. Oh, um, definitely much. far more have been killed by lightning strikes. I mean, it, it, we don't, we everything, cancer, everything is, Everything has killed people more than the plague, yeah. basically. Yes, and, the, and all of these people who died from this just let it go on for too long and they didn't get antibiotics. Because right. right now, if you do get it, penicillin will kick it right out of you or, or any antibiotic. Super treatable. Yeah. And I thought that was just worth mentioning in case people heard that term like, what? And I'm somebody I've written a fair amount on disease and viral infections, bacteria and stuff like this. And yeah, this is not really, shouldn't be much on the radar in terms of concerns about human health. But of course, it's a nice thing to inflame on intentionally. And then when you're just uh, dumb and in the media, you're like, well, that sounds bad. And then also you're like, and this will get clicks. So there's a lot of reason for putting stuff out there like that. And it's important to debunk that stuff. And yeah, it's pretty easy to debunk. So yeah, Colorado Parks Wildlife, they are a lot of times contradictory on things. So they call them Keystone and then they call them Nuisance. Same with stuff I've done around mountain lions. I actually had somebody from Parks and Wildlife. Now he's a scientist and a biologist, so he's not involved with all the bureaucracy there, but his studies are showing stuff around chronic wasting disease, how the mountain lions can pick out the deer with chronic wasting disease and the elk kill them off earlier. It actually helps limit the spread potentially. That's what his studies have found. And on the other hand, so that comes out through Colorado Parks and Wildlife and stuff like that. And then on the other hand, they're like, yeah, we got to kill off a bunch of these predators. And it's like, which is it? And they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. And it's like, well, we're going to worry about it. So yeah, that's what they do. They, I'm sure there are plenty of people in Colorado Parks and Wildlife that know how important prairie dogs are, but the agency itself is full of contradictions and does seem to be about catering towards hunters and agriculturalists and what have you. And it's too bad. So what sort of work have you been doing through Prairie Protection Colorado to protect these animals? Well, we, we do a lot of things um, and we're getting more into like the structures of the wildlife life uh, agencies like Colorado Parks and Wildlife and everything. And, and just real quick before I forget, you were talking about like uh, chronic wasting disease and we're seeing mange now all over on especially coyotes up and down the front range. And all of this stuff too is from like mange was purposely spread in Wyoming and it got out into all the wildlife populations from these types of, of wildlife officials. So we have like the USDA Wildlife Services and all of these people trying to figure out how to kill the coyotes. So chronic wasting disease now too, they've just found out that that is also uh, created, was created in the lab and it got out of control. So, I mean, we're looking at these diseases that are coming out and um, finding that these things have been meddled with and they've been released into wildlife populations as ways to try to make these animals sick. 
So, I mean, just that just popped in my mind, but so Prairie Protection Colorado is trying to bring out more um, knowledge of, for people to understand what's really at play here when we're seeing our wildlife rapidly disappearing. So I hadn't heard about the idea of CWD being created in a lab. I will definitely have to do more research on that. That's pretty scary. I mean, I, from what I understand, not to get into that topic too much, but the spread at least is through when they uh, do farming of deer and that's where they first noticed it. So regardless of how it was spread, clearly humans were a part of this and uh, yeah, we messed things up and I hadn't heard about the name. Well, I think either. the red deer like that, that they had over here and then they got rid that brought it over originally yeah. and then it was kind of used to see if they could use it to kill more animals. So it wasn't like concocted in the lab, but it was uh, trying to, it was, it was used in the lab as a possible method of killing coyotes, you know? So, um, cause coyotes are an issue for wildlife officials cause they want them gone. Right. And that's just not the way that they work. They're, they're the tricksters. They're very resilient. And oh, yeah. you it know, doesn't they, seem to affect CWD doesn't seem to affect those species anyway. So that's no good. But, but I'm, yeah. I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, exactly. True. True. Yeah. That, which is a good thing, but yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, that's basically biological warfare. It's uh, it's basically terrorism. It's, yeah. it's pretty awful. Yes. But with the prairie dogs, what we do to, to help people is like, basically like we focus kind of on, um, well, not kind of, but we focus on grassroots activists, advocates who are locally in areas who are concerned about certain prairie dog colonies. They come to us and they say, hey, you know, I'm, very, I'm curious. I want to help try to save this. What do I do? And then we give them kind of a list of things to do to see how serious they are about it. And then we start backing them and mount public campaigns. And um, they, we call out the people who are doing it. We get involved in city council meetings. We get involved in uh, just anything that we can in outreach. And we have saved many, many colonies. And I saved my colony really going out there on a limb for this colony that I really cared about. That's how we kind of got started. And we were able to save a bunch of the survivors of a poisoning and they're up here on my land right now. Hmm. Um, but, and we have been able to save a lot of prairie dogs on different parks and different public open spaces, just by getting people more and more involved in doing actions like writing letters or calling their officials or reaching out. And in all of that too, our main goal is trying to do what I'm doing with you right now, which is educating the public about you know, who prairie dogs are and why we should care and why they're important and trying to dispel and, and make a lot of people aware of the myths of these prairie dogs. And then we want to call into account our wildlife officials, not just for the prairie dogs, but for all of the other wildlife um, in Colorado, because like you said, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is designed with the commissioners to support sport hunting and trophy hunting. And that's where more than 60% of their funds come from. And that is their, and they will tell you that those are their clients, that they don't, you know, that they serve them. Um, so lots of people don't realize that. I certainly didn't realize that when I first started getting involved, I didn't realize that the forest service was really about supporting timber. So, I mean, th so that's a big thing for people to start important an important thing for all of us to start understanding that the system created these positions Right. Um, that actually helped destroy the life that we care so much about. And that's yeah. something we, we have to reckon with. It has to be like revolutionary, really, because the, it, yeah. all the laws and everything that are embedded in these agencies 
are all in service to, you know, industry, agriculture, hunters. It's just a fact. And that's how they get their funding. They're like, hey, well, we also do some good stuff. And sometimes they do some good stuff. But the larger whole, it's like, well, are you doing more harm than good? Yes. And where do you get your funding? Well, from these bad things. It's like, well, why do you why is that acceptable? Well, we need funding. It's like, well, if the funding is just funding all this other garbage, then uh, maybe you can stop doing the garbage and then you'd need less funding. So yeah, it's, uh, and it's unfortunate because there are a lot of good folks. A lot of the scientists, I think with these agencies, a lot of them, they know the truth. And I've talked to them kind of uh, off the record about things. And they, most of the times they kind of get it. And it's like, okay, well, this is the situation here. This is what the science shows. And I, I've said to some of them, like, so basically what you're doing is you're just kind of saying, you're just trying to find some balance between, you know, what is actually the science and best for the ecology and then stuff here that's clearly harmful, but is also bringing in the money. And they're just like, yep. And I was like, oh, well, that's, I didn't expect you to be so candid. So <laughs> yeah. A lot of them know this and it's, it's a bummer because they think they're doing good. And, and I think some of them, like the, the fellow I, I had on for one of my podcasts, he is doing some great science. He's just a research scientist. So he's not really doing anything harmful, but he is part of an entity that is doing a lot of things that aren't so great. They're, you know, he's putting out all this science, look how great mountain lions are. And then meanwhile, the same entity is literally killing mountain lions. And it's like, well, it's because there are not enough, uh, the deer and elk. It's like, well, cause so many of them are being hunted. And yeah. then, then the CWD is killing them on top yeah. of that. And it's just, yeah, it's chaotic. And, it, and I think there's a fair argument for just really disbanding these entities and doing something entirely different. The forest service, sometimes they do some, uh, I've have a harder time finding a good thing the forest service <laughs> yeah. does, but I, there are good folks in the forest service. I'll say that much. And, um, but yeah, they, they typically do more harm than good. And I think you're right. When people discover, oh, these government agencies, oh, well, parks and wildlife. Well, that sounds great. And it's like, well, you know, killing wildlife is not the answer. But just to sort of switch over a little bit more to details with prairie dog stuff. Can you talk a little bit about their vocalizations, their communications? Because it's, it's pretty fascinating. They, yeah. They're basically talking. Not yeah, they, English, not English. Yeah, but. yeah. well, uh, the, re the reason we have all this data is because of an incredible and awesome scientist, and his name is Khan Shlobachukip, uh, and anyway, he um, has done a lot of work, 30-some years, sorry, Slobachikov, Khan Slobachikov, and he, you can look him up, he does great stuff, he's done lots of videos. And like they call them the the prairie dogs are like the mere or meerkats of North America. Meerkats are beloved too, but prairie dogs are very similar and they're not nearly as beloved. Like you said, I mean, there's not all these films and these great things going on about the prairie dogs, but he was, he decided to study the language and did extensive studies and would like um, do a lot of props. So he would take a coyote statue that looked quite similar to a coyote he'd roll it into the colony and then he'd he'd record the sounds then he'd pull them out on the computer over you know and and stretch out the tones and he could see that they had exact same words for coyotes and not just for one but for a particular one so when this mechanical one goes out they'd have a different name and then for birds they'd do the same thing when birds would fly over but they would not they not not only would distinguish like from a red-tailed fox or a red-tailed hawk to a golden eagle to a falcon they had different like tones for that and then he would do different colors of shirts 
And, you know, and he would always come back over time and, and they'd always have the same tone for the white and the same tone for the yellow and the same tone for the red and the same tone for the blue. And then he'd do it with shovels and he'd find, and he'd do this over great amounts of time and they'd still have the exact same tone. And so he really discovered that prairie dog, actually his research shows that prairie dogs have the most complex language ever studied in any animal, including dolphins and whales. And that's probably, and he attributes that to just to the fact that he studied it for so long. Um, and that most animals do have a complex language. Prairie dogs really do depend on this language for their survival though. And it is the way that they keep, um, you know, a, a smaller percentage of prairie dogs are predated than other prey. And a lot of that does have to do with their, their communication. So you have sentries, you have these, you call them sentries or scouts, and they sit out there and if you watch a colony and with your binoculars, go out there if any of you have access to one, if you're in Colorado or any other state that has them, and you can go out and just watch them for 10 or 15 minutes and you'll watch it. So you'll see that there's a, th a few prairie dogs, depending on the size of the colony, who are constantly alert. So they're standing up, they're looking, they're looking, the other guys are out eating, you know, and they're playing or doing whatever it is that they do. And then the prairie dog, if they see somebody, including you, or if they see a bird or if they see a car, or if they see another human being walk, they'll tell everybody. So they'll start chirping and they chirp. And then everybody stands at alert. Everybody runs right to their burrow so they can pop down um, if it's a real hazard and they're communicating to each other about what's going on and who's where and what, and then they do a jump yip, which they're not, I don't, some people think that they're saying all's clear or, you know, whatever it might be, but they that definitely is another communication of a language that hasn't been exactly figured out what that's for. There's different theories, but whatever they're doing, they're communicating and they're very dependent on each other and they live in coteries. So that's family units. So if you watch them, like they have a certain, maybe 10 or 15 burrows off in one colony or more, depending on, and then they all choose, that's their little group. And then you'll see all the different little groups throughout a, a main colony. And they pretty much, you know, live in those happy groups and care and feel like that's their family. And you can tell they don't like certain prairie dogs um, and they like other prairie dogs. They'll invite them over. And also when there is a predator in the area, all rules are off for burrow use. Whichever burrow is closest to you, you can go down. But then when you watch them in normal time and when there's not a threat, they have very strict rules about who can and cannot access people's homes. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're a very communal uh, species hmm. and we could learn a lot from prairie dogs. Um, and, and that's one thing that definitely makes them very fascinating. And it's very interesting to watch them and anybody can do that and, and start to see these traits and characteristics in them. They kiss each other. They, they do, they, they just, they massage each other. They're just very communal and, and caring for each other. Yeah. I hadn't spent a lot of time amongst prairie dogs until I came out to Colorado and yeah, definitely along the front range. I've seen plenty, not in all areas, but a lot in the area from Boulder up to Lyons and kind of just West there in the parks there, there are some great colonies and I've just kind of stood there and watched them for a while. And some of them are pretty curious and you know they don't get too close but they definitely keep an eye on me and they're not running off but the fact that they have all that language in terms of it would make sense okay something threat by land threat by air but the fact that they actually discern between the different birds and all that that's amazing and not yeah. that an animal i don't know it's always like oh look they're a smarter animal so they're they're better it's like no i think beetles are cool too but i think it's fascinating when there is this complexity and it's 
I think it shows that there's probably more complexity in the animal world that we're just not really paying attention to. But this is something that really can be communicated to the world and it's something that's really worth studying. And like you said, it's been studied, but getting it out there more, I think is really crucial. So I'm really glad you could speak to that. Um, so in terms of what is the best way to protect them? Is it about protecting the land where they're already living or is it about relocating them or a combination? Well, I'm uh, definitely, it's all about protecting land. Number one. I mean, if we, that, and that is where it's becomes extraordinarily difficult. Um, just like all of us who are trying to protect a particular habitat or a particular biome. Um, they're all kind of going under, they're being churned under for, for one use. But um, yeah, and relocation is like, it, it's a hard thing because relocation's a bummer really. I mean, it's, yeah. it's hard to, that these prairie dogs are connected to their land base. Sure. Um, but of course, in most cases right now, there is no other option other than relocation. And that option is extraordinarily limited too, mm -hmm. because there's no land available to move prairie dogs to. And that's really where the counties who still have prairie dogs need to start, you know, performing their, their role in this too, and setting aside like 25% of open space land for prairie dogs on the short grass prairies. And that's actually was, was drawn out in, it's called the Colorado Grassland Species Plan that was made in 2003. And that was created as a result of um, the prairie dog being threatened to be listed as an endangered species because they, they made all the qualifications to be on the endangered species list. And then they can use all these weird things like, well, that's too expensive to, to enforce. So instead, what we're going to do is get the 11 states who still have prairie dogs in them to write up these policies that with these ideas. And that was one of them was to get the counties to start preserving prairie dogs and to start like devoting an, a certain amount of land to prairie dog uh, preservation and, and relocation. And that just, of course, hasn't happened if the funding isn't there, if the will isn't there and policies are not laws. So policies do not need to be followed. Uh, they're not, you can't, you can't bring them up against in a court of law. They're not, they're not legal. Um, so that, that, that's when it comes to relocation, good law, it's extraordinarily um, difficult, but it has been done. And I've done, and, but Colorado Parks and Wildlife tried to stop me from relocating my prairie dogs up to this land where I live um, and used all kinds of excuses. And then they denied another uh, relocation permit that I filed because you have to actually file a permit to move any of these prairie dogs. And it's extraordinarily uh, tedious. It's like 20 pages long. Then you have to write letters to all neighbors. I had to write, the forest service is the one who told me that they didn't want prairie dogs on my land and prairie dogs don't live in forests. And they certainly wouldn't have, have gone into the forest. They would just be in my meadow. Um, and the commissioners got involved even on mine because the, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife requires that you at least notify the commissioners. Um, and the commissioners need, can have a say, and they all said, are you kidding? We don't want any more prairie dogs saved in this county. We'd rather have them killed. Um, and that's the whole thing in Colorado too. If you want to move a prairie dog colony from say Douglas County to Boulder County, because there's some available land in Boulder County and there isn't, but let's just pretend then you would like, we, we did some relocations onto Rocky flats, which is a, you know, toxic place. And, uh, and, but I think the, the prairie dogs are doing fine there, but it was the only place that would be accepting them. And they were trying to do that in support of reintroducing black footed ferrets eventually out there. And it was a nightmare 
um, it was an, it, it's, we had to go through Jefferson County. The commissioner said, absolutely no prairie dogs. And this is what happens to any County. If Douglas County wanted to move it to a really nice place, a prairie dog colony that's in Douglas County to a really nice place in Boulder County, you would have to get all the commissioners in Boulder County to agree. And they won't. And if you wanted to move them to Baca County or, or Pueblo or any, I mean, they have to say yes. And they don't, it doesn't happen. And that was put up as a, that whole law, which was sent bill, uh, now I forget the number, but it was, it was passed and um, it basically was passed against somebody who had started purchasing large amounts of land and for relocation of prairie dogs into Baca County. So the Senate and the House, like the, the, or a bill was drafted by a legislature and it passed both the Senate and the House to make it a requirement that commissioners actually have to approve any prairie dogs coming into their county from another county. So Relocation is extraordinarily difficult to get. Um, and that's a big problem if you're gonna go that route. If you want to restore big segments of grassland for biodiversity, then it's going to be a really huge fight unless there's something seriously changed with our wildlife uh, organization, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and with the, the laws that surround prairie dogs, because they treat them just like you're moving plagues into different places is how they try to Kind of approach it. I see. Yeah, that sounds really complex. And of course, I can understand concerns with relocating anything onto rocky flats. I've done some podcasts about that, the plutonium in the soil. But basically, it come down to it, there is no other place for no. these animals. And I think that's the underlying issue: is can we set aside land for what we know is an important creature? And would you say that it is? possibility to get them on an endangered species list or is that unlikely because of the fake things that they say they're doing well it's really hard to get any species right well, now on endangered yeah, species well, list. the monarch butterflies and stuff and they because they prioritize them now right so i mean even though they meet a lot of species yeah. thousands of species meet the criteria and that's admitted and then they come by and say you know well let's go ahead and prioritize which one needs it more so they just they don't they don't have the will they don't have the money and it's just it's a really strange law when you start reading it because it's has a lot of loop it's certainly isn't it's a great thing that there's the endangered i mean that's one of the sadly it's one of the best protections out there and it has been used in many ways to protect habitat and to protect species but it's also extraordinarily powerless weak it's yes. weak it, it's it's putting off the inevitable for some species but yeah i mean they definitely qualify for the esa but yeah. the, would they actually put them on the list that's highly almost just completely unlikely because it is such, that would be such a bane to industry and to agriculture and to commerce because prairie dogs, like we said before, they live in areas that developers are drooling over and that are easy to build on and that are um, easy to grow crops on. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, and fortunately for those of us who live here, but it's a very desirable area to be. So people are snatching up all the last of the developing landscape to develop on and stuff like that, which is a real bummer, which is why I think it is important to talk about, all right, well, how many people can this area support? And it's, it's an important discussion, but what if can, are there areas that are dedicated to grazing cattle right now that would make good homes for prairie dogs? 
Um, I mean, there are those areas out there and in Boulder County, they do a lot of, uh, multi-use grazing where they do allow prairie dogs on the, um, on cattle area, on area they're leasing out to ranchers. Right. Um, and it, it's definitely, they've done, there has been research done showing that it's, it's totally possible and beneficial. It kind of depends like in the, the West, I mean, um, the cattle are the ones we should really be trying to get off of our public lands and we should yep. be trying to get our, our native species back onto those public lands because cattle in a really arid um, environment that has been completely robbed of all of its groundwater and water sources mm -hmm. is not a good place for cows to, to be, you know, meddling in um, at prayer in to get them back there. So the priority of, of prairie dogs and native species over um, these, these, I call them welfare ranchers yep. is like super important in, in getting reestablishing any of these things. But it is also true at the same hand that they've done lots of research in areas, grasslands that are healthier and get more moisture and shown that um, the prairie dogs and the cattle can coexist just fine. You're not seeing any cows right. and legs yeah. being dead all over the ground, including in Boulder County. So um, it's definitely possible, but, but it's that whole, mental block that people have and the hatred that they have. And they feel like the prairie dogs are competing with their cows for grass, especially if they want to sell that grass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the coexisting, that seems fine as an interim kind of thing, but yeah, I mean, I'll go on the record and say there shouldn't be any cows in public lands in the West. It just doesn't make any sense, but that might be the foot in the door. It's like, Oh, well, we're going to just you know, both will coexist. And then over time, it's like, actually, we want to get your cows out permanently. And uh, I have no problem stating that publicly, but it's just in terms of, okay, well, where is this land going to come from? Well, we're probably not going to be knocking down condominiums to, <laughs> to provide land for wild creatures. It's just probably not going to happen. And then areas that are likely to be developed for homes, shopping malls, of course, we should be protecting that when we can, but that's difficult. But if we could say, well, here's already this land for cows, the long-term goal to get those cows out of there and turn that over to prairie dogs, that seems to me to make a lot of sense. Yeah, because it, they're not like wolves, where in some ways reintroducing wolves is easier because it's like, well, there you go, wolf, walk wherever. And as long as nobody shoots you, you'll probably do okay. But these little guys and gals, they need specific kind of landscape. So it's not like they can just go anywhere. So that's tricky. Yeah. And it's hard with relocation, although, you know, wolves are tough too, because everybody's after them with their guns, of course, but, course, uh, but course. prairie dogs are, are tough because, um, you have to create burrows for them. So, um, if there are not burrows in the area, like, I guess you could relocate and they have relocated prairie dogs in certain areas where say the plague came through a few years ago, then they try to move them back into the existing burrows that haven't collapsed yet or anything, but otherwise you need to get equipment and you need to do tubing. So you're using actual irrigation tubes made out of plastic with a box in it. You're cutting out like a half moon into the ground with like a dozer scoop. Right. And that's like a three foot wide, you know, by maybe six foot down. Um, so just like a half moon scoop out into the ground, you put a box, a nest box on the bottom and two plastic tube irrigation pipes coming out. Then you have to also to have a success. I mean, if you just moved prairie dogs and threw them out, you would not, they would all die. There's no doubt. 
you have to lock them into these burrows, the manufactured burrows that you make from them with like wire cages so that they can get acclimated to the area. You also need to move them in their family units. So when you're like you relocation, if you want it to work, because it won't work if you don't do it right, you have to be very, very intelligent and you have to know what you're doing and you have to be very calculated to ensure their survival because you know, if, if a prairie dog is moved into, it's horrifying. It's a horrifying, we just heard about their language and about how connected and communal they are and moving them from their, uh, basically ripping out their umbilical cord to the land that they've always known and being refugees. Would we rather be refugees or dead? Well, we'd probably rather be refugees, but it's not exactly, uh, none of us want to be refugees. None of us want to be ripped out of our home and thrown somewhere. So it's much, it, they're much more successful if you've put them with their family units. So if you're going to put them in one borough, you have to make sure that you mark everything and you mark your cages. And when you move, move them, you same same family borough that they were used to. And you want to have all their neighbors directionally, direction wise in those manufactured boroughs too. So when they look to the North, they're seeing who they'd usually see. And when they look to the, you know, the West and the East and the South, they're all their, all their family units are there. And then they're more likely to stay. Um, and not just bolt once they get acclimated to there. So it's a very complicated process to do a successful relocation where yeah. you don't lose more than 90% of the animals. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like a lot of work. And I almost envision this ridiculous future where the only prairie dogs alive are just in these manufactured burrows that we make in our suburban areas. And just that doesn't seem like the ones up here, we had to do 75 burrows or something like that. And they've made tons of their I mean, immediately they'll start making their own burrows. Yeah. Like that's what they yeah. do, the burrowers, but but they still utilize the manufactured ones out there too. But yeah, I mean. Yeah. It would be so much better if we would, I mean, we really, and we know that you and I both know that probably most of your listeners know that is that we need to stop destroying habitat and we need to help restore habitat. We need to try to get it back. And, and yep. the likelihood of that changing on a political level is sadly to say it's, it's very unimaginable for me um, to see that actually happening, but that is the truth of what needs to happen. We need to stop destroying life or else there's going to be no more life left to support you know, us to support prairie dogs, to support any of the other uh, animals that we love and care about and the soil and the water. Yep. I mean. Yep. That's the common thread running through it all. We need to be preserving the land. It's just really uh, that simple. And that's one of the hardest things to do, but it is a very simple concept that we can at least wrap our heads around being just duh obvious, but it's a really hard thing to do. And yeah, our politicians, I mean, the fact that knowing what I know about county commissioners regarding well things around COVID and just how ignorant they are just in general, like the idea like, well, we want to see what they think about letting prairie dogs in. It's like they don't know anything. Um, why, why are we waiting upon the permission of people who have no idea what they're talking about? And that's just a really sad thing. It may be, have there been some work that anyone has done around kids? Because they are, they're still, they are pretty cute. So, and kids don't have all the stigma of, oh, they're a rat or like, they don't care about that stuff. Oh, they love them. In yeah. fact, there was the, so, and I do class, like I've done Zoom classes since COVID too with kids and they all have pictures of their prairie dogs and they just want to talk about the prairie dogs in their mm -hmm. neighborhood. And they really, really like prairie dogs. And there was a Senate bill that went up in 2016. And the ranchers were trying to make another bill that would make it make it uh, impossible to relocate prairie dogs within counties. 
So they wanted mm-hmm. to do another like commissioner's approval required within counties. And these third graders from the Denver Expeditionary School, I was able, they asked me to come talk to them. And then I got, was able to get them all excited about the Senate hearing. Or, and so they went into their like, you know, 200 kids and they put them all off and made them sit there for two hours. These kids were good. They were, they were, and then they finally had to leave. But the group of kids that were going to talk came back in time, like, which is like five hours later came back to speak and they had yeah. three adorable like three-year-old girls talking to the senate the the to this group the and they i do honestly believe right now that they are the reason that bill did not pass cool. and they they were involved in writing letters they wrote tons of letters to the legislature they wrote, mm-hmm. wrote to this committee to the they called mm-hmm. the kill bill committee or whatever and they were actually going to pass this bill by one vote. And then they got flooded with all these little kids. And those kids came up there and they talked and we did a lot of media on it. So hmm. they totally kids could, That's awesome. kids are really important, not just to, to also get involved in the political because people, these hmm. people you're talking about, like commissioners and stuff, they actually do care about, I mean, they're not, they're not totally, totally dumb kids. <laughs> I mean, or, or ignorant or whatever they want. Kids make a difference. They hear it. Sure. They hear the kids. They don't hear me. I'm just a troublemaker. You've got a cute three-year-old or several or hundreds of cute three-year-olds saying, we really love prairie dogs. Please save them. And then you all of a sudden have the, them going, wait, there's, there's something to this. We can't tell these kids like, right. no, we're not going to protect the prairie dogs. And it's instilling it in them really young. So when they grow up, they're going to care about these issues. So I think that's yeah. super important. Yeah, I've always thought working with kids on these is, is really central because sometimes adults are lost causes. But uh, yeah. so if folks want to get in touch with your organization or tie into this, work campaigns how can they do so they can uh we're on facebook under prairie protection colorado you can always message us on there um you can email me at prairieprotectioncolorado at gmail.com um you can go to our website prairieprotectioncolorado.org and that'll have all the contact information on that as well and you know just and we always if you see prairie dog a colony that you care about that you want to try to help protect we have uh, we have guidelines and ways to do that, and we have been successful numerous times in doing that. And of course, if you have anything to contribute in terms of writing or education or art, we always welcome all of that. So yeah, we hope that we do hear from more people and that more people get involved. Great. Well, thanks so much, Deanna, for coming on the Green Room Podcast and thank for you. all your work on this issue. Yes, thank you.